0: I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Let me read for us Mark chapter 6. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no money work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can focus our minds and our hearts upon Jesus and upon your word. And Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would do a work upon our hearts and upon our minds. That you would renew our thinking that you would move upon our affections and cause us to marvel at Jesus and cause us to live lives worthy of Christ. We pray, Lord, that as a church we would grow in our commitment to being the church, to being all that the church is meant to be, the pillar and buttress of the truth, a family, a household, a church that is called to be um, an embassy, a, 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 an embassy of your kingdom on earth. We are called to be your ambassadors and your representatives and your delegates and and your, your missionaries and, and your evangelists and your disciples. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we pray that you would use it to put a flame in us that would truly desire to live as the church of jesus christ in the midst of an unbelieving hostile word world so lord we ask that you would do this for the glory of your name for the good of your people we pray this in jesus name amen Well, up until this point in Mark's gospel, we've seen all kinds of different reactions, responses to Jesus. We've seen repentance and faith. We've seen people become followers of Jesus. They've left everything they had and began following Jesus. We've seen responses of amazement and wonder at Jesus' miracles. We've seen unbeliefs. Unbelief. We've seen hardness of heart and even hostility towards Jesus. The kingdom of God advancing in Jesus is, is creating different reactions from the people as the, as the parable of the sower taught us. What's probably most surprising is that those you'd expect to have a positive response to Jesus are often those who take offense at Jesus. His own family and the religious leaders you would think out of all the people in Israel these would have been the most receptive to Jesus but this wasn't so and here in chapter 6 Jesus returns to his hometown the place he grew up which would have been Nazareth and once again the people you suspect who would have been most receptive to Jesus were actually the ones who were most deeply offended by him. So in verse 1 we're told he he left where he was, he was in Capernaum, and he returned to his hometown Nazareth and and his disciples followed him. Now it's important we see that his disciples were present with him in Nazareth. And the reason is is because Jesus is about to commission them in verse 7. But he wants them to see firsthand that to be his representatives, it will not all be glorious and wonderful. They're going to be given the task of ministering to Israel, but just like those in Jesus's hometown, they're not going to get a hero's welcome. So he enters Naz- Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, Je- Jesus goes to the synagogue. Let's say he goes to the church, and he. He begins to teach, and and it's at this point in the narrative where things begin to go down. So look at verse 2 and 3. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus begins teaching, and we're told the people were astonished. There was a level of shock. There was a level of surprise. And their astonishment is revealed in questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? See, they know that Jesus wasn't a trained rabbi. He, he wasn't taught under any rabbinical school. Not only that, they don't understand how Jesus can be doing these mighty miracles. It's possible they they've heard reports of Jesus' miracles and, and that he was doing these miracles by the demonic, as the religious leaders accused him of doing. See, their astonishment at Jesus' wisdom and power is based upon what they know of him, revealed in the rest of the questions they ask. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are are not his sisters with us? You see, they can't comprehend that Jesus can teach with such wisdom and has power to do mighty works based upon who they know him to be. Now when they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, this was not a a genuine inquiry. This was a dig at Jesus. Both phrases were most likely an act of verbal hostility towards Jesus. It was derogatory in nature. Is not this the carpenter? Meaning... Isn't this a commoner like the rest of us who who works with his hands? He's just a carpenter. He's not some accomplished rabbinical teacher. And the next phrase is even more offensive. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? See, when we read this as modern people, we, we don't see the offense of this statement. But in ancient Israel... You would always refer to the son in relation to the father, not the mother, even if the father had died. So I would be the, father, the son of John, not the son of Andrea. So it's, it's possible that when they say the son of Mary, they're referring to Jesus being illegitimate. Rumors probably had spread from the time Mary was pregnant with Jesus because she wasn't married yet. And most of the people probably didn't believe the virgin birth story. We actually have evidence of this in John's Gospel. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to the Jews about about who the children of God are. And and he's saying that they're not the children of Abraham because they they are not believing in him as Abraham believed in him. And this is what we read. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did, which of course Jesus there is referring to the devil. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What are they implying? We weren't born of sexual immorality like you were, Jesus. Who's your father? Jesus. So they're being degrading and offensive, and and they took offense at him, which the end of verse 3 tells us. They were offended by Jesus. Everything about him was offensive to them. Who does he think he is teaching like he does when he's just a carpenter born out of sexual immorality? What's going on here? Why are they so offended at Jesus? Well, Jesus experienced what is often the norm of human relationships. Familiarity breeds contempt. There are people who are deeply offended when, when someone they grew up with, who was one of them in every way, should become much more than they See, Jesus went from being a carpenter growing up in the backwaters of Nazareth. He was illegitimate, but now he's a teacher of Torah, he's a miracle worker, and he has followers. They took offense to this, as the sinful heart so often does. Though it's not exactly the same, the the reality is for, for many Christians, those who take offense most to their faith are often those who are closest To them so they're offended by Jesus and and Jesus responds to them in verse 4 where he says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household what's the point that Jesus is making well in one sense he's identifying himself with the lineage of prophets that God has established throughout the Old Testament God's prophets, those who spoke on behalf of God, were rejected by their own people. They were shown no honor by their people. They were offended. The people were offended by the prophets. So he's identifying himself with the prophets, but he's also identifying the people of Nazareth, his hometown, with sinful Israel, who rejected the prophets over and over again. And... He's also preparing his disciples, the 12 specifically, for what lays ahead of them. So they take offense at Jesus, and in verse 5 to 6, we're told the result of their response. Look at verse 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages Teaching. We're told he could not do any mighty work there except the healing of a few sick people. Now, this verse has been quite controversial for some because at first it seems like Jesus is limited by people's response to him. It seems like Jesus is unable to heal due to their unbelief. But is that what Mark is actually teaching? Are Jesus' hands somehow tied based upon people's response? Well, there's a problem with that idea. But Kent Hughes explains it well when he says, Omnipotence is not omnipotence if it is bound by anything but its own will. Jesus, being all-powerful as the Divine Son, cannot be bound by something outside of himself. For if this were so, he wouldn't be all-powerful. So what's going on here? Well, I think Matthew's account in chapter 13, verse 58 brings clarity. We're told, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He did not. Not that he could not. In other words, when Mark says he could not the best way to think about it would be he could not because he would not. Due to their unbelief, Jesus was compelled, morally compelled, to not reveal his power to them, to not do the miraculous. You see, unbelief can keep you from seeing the glory of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus. Not because you somehow are able to paralyze Jesus because of your unbelief. No, no. But because he is unwilling if there is unbelief. You see, they were so hardened that we're told in verse 6 that Jesus marveled. He marveled. He was amazed. He was astonished at their unbelief. You know, it's interesting, there are moments in the Gospels where we're told that Jesus was amazed by certain individual's faith. But he was also amazed at the unbelief he came across. You know, based upon your life, if if Jesus were to look into your life, what would be the reason for his amazement? Would he be amazed because of your faith? Or would he be amazed because... Of your unbelief and despite the fact that there was so much unbelief he he did still lay his hand on a few sick people and he did continue to go about the villages teaching so this is Jesus encounter in his return home he's he's ministering in a world of unbelief a village or so to speak of unbelief, but this sets up what happens next when when Jesus commissions his 12 disciples to to be extensions of him in doing his kingdom work. He wants to make clear that they will be representatives of him. They will do his work, but they will but they too will come into contact with the same kind of unbelief that Jesus had experienced. It's important we see that this passage primarily um, where Jesus commissions his disciples is, is specifically primarily focused on the 12 for a specific occasion. In other words, though there are principles, principles here for us to emulate, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to do exactly what the 12 did here in this passage. This commission... Was specifically given to them for that specific moment. But there are several things we need to see here in these verses that I do think apply to us. So, first, the sending out in pairs and the authority to cast out the demonic. Look at what he says in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, Why Jesus chose to send them out in twos, we're not totally sure, but this seems to be a repeated practice throughout the scriptures. It's possible that it's tied to the Old Testament and the importance of always having two witnesses in order to have authentic testimony according to legal requirements. Also possibly, it's for the mere purpose of edification and encouragement. The Apostle Paul over and over again talks about individuals who were with him that encouraged him and strengthened him on his missionary journeys. You see, none of us are strong enough to be lone Christians. So, so Paul, or Jesus, makes draws attention to them being sent out in pairs, and, and that they have authority to cast out the demonic. Now notice, Jesus gave them the authority, they didn't have it within themselves. And this marks a clear distinction between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has authority within himself to cast out the demonic, whereas he gives his disciples the authority to do so. Secondly, he instructs them in regards to material provisions. So, Look at verses 8 to 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So he tells them what not to bring and what to bring. Don't bring bread, Don't no bag, no money in their belts, and don't put on two tini- tunics. But they can bring a staff, and of course, they can wear sandals. Now this picture of the disciples with just their staff and sandals and a single tunic with no traveling pack or provision emulates a similar strand from Elijah to John the Baptist. And it's no coincidence that just after Jesus commissions his disciples, we return to the story of John the Baptist. You see, the twelve, in one sense, are to carry on the spirit of the prophets. And Jesus' instruction to them regarding provision is a reminder that they must have utter dependence upon God. Now, this doesn't mean, as Christians... That if we're going to serve the lord we should only have a staff and some sandals but these words should make us a little bit uncomfortable it should cause us to to question where our trust and our security truly lies there's a principle here and and the principle is quite simple but very hard to live do we truly live lives completely dependent upon god for all things That if poverty strikes us, we'll continue to trust him. And when riches befall us, we'll continue to depend on him. So he speaks to their provision. Thirdly, he instructs them on how they ought to respond to those who respond to them. Based upon the response of the people, he instructs them on how to respond. So look at verses 10 to 11. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now when we read this, we are prone to think that Jesus is referring to entering someone's household. The disciples were doing door-to-door evangelism. But I actually don't think that's what's going on here. When Jesus is referring to the house, I think he's actually referring to the synagogue. Here's why. The 12 were were to imitate the ministry of Jesus. They were to cast out demons. They were to preach the coming of the kingdom and repentance. They were to heal the sick. These three things encapsulated Jesus's ministry. And when you look at Jesus' ministry, he predominantly did his ministry in the synagogues from village to village. He taught in the open air as well, but, but he was intentional in entering the synagogues and teaching the people. And I think this is what Jesus has in mind when he tells the disciples, whenever you enter a house, they were to go to the synagogues of Israel and proclaim the kingdom and repentance. And you see this same method with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. The Apostle Paul, whenever he entered a city, he looked for a synagogue and would begin there and then would go to the Gentiles. So the twelve, whenever they enter a new village and they enter a house, they're to remain in that area until they depart. But then he instructs them on what to do when an area or village is hostile toward them and their message. As he says, if they will not receive you or listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What is going on here? Well, this is hard for us to understand as as modern readers, but for the Jews, they totally would have understood this gesture. Rabbis would would often shake the dust off their feet when leaving Gentile territory to avoid carrying their defilement with them. So when Jesus tells the disciples to do likewise to fellow Israelis who who do not receive them or listen to their preaching, they're basically saying to their fellow Jews, you're hardened and defiled like the pagans. And this, as Jesus says, was to be a testimony against them. They would have no excuse before God for their refusal to listen to Jesus or his representatives. They were marked as unrepentant and therefore were liable to judgment. Now, this is precisely the, the logic in, in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 to 11, where Jesus sends out the 72. This is what we read. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into, to, go into streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. We remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jesus here is logically arguing... That when a when a town in Israel or a city in Israel has been warned, and the disciples have dust uh, cleaned the dust off their feet, he is saying, Listen, for that town it will be worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. They have become liable to judgment. Now, though this was specifically given in the context of Israel, there's a principle here that we need. And it's simply this, God has and continually and continues to graciously warn sinners of the coming of his kingdom. He's graciously calling people to repentance. But if you continue to refuse to listen, if you continue to not receive the gospel of Jesus and his representatives, you are making yourself liable to judgment. Friend, every time you hear the word of God preached, every time you hear the gospel preached, and a a call to repent and believe in Jesus, and you continue to refuse, you are making yourself liable to judgment. You will have no witnesses to defend you before God's righteous judgment. So I encourage you, heed the word of God, repent, and put your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died for the sins of the world. So that's how the disciples were to respond to the people, depending on their response. Now in verses 12 to 13, we're given a summary statement of the threefold ministry that the disciples were called to at this specific time. As we read here, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They preached repentance, that is, a turning away from from sin, a, a turning away from loyalty to self and sin, and turning towards Jesus Christ and saying, I'm going to live for Jesus now. They preached repentance. They, cast, they casted out demons. They healed the sick. They did precisely the things that defined Jesus' ministry. Jesus commissioned them as delegates. Their message and works were in one sense an extension of the work of Jesus. They were being called, invested in, equipped, Invited by Jesus to be participants in his ministry work. See, though this specific mission was given to the twelve, the scriptures teach, however, that the church has been commissioned by Jesus to carry on his work in the power of the Holy Spirit. As Thomas Wyandande states, the church is that authorized body which continues to enact his, that is Christ's acts, and in so doing continues to make present the kingdom that he established through his saving acts. This is the great privilege that we have as followers of Jesus, that we have as the church of Jesus. We've been invited to participate in the work that Jesus is doing. Every time we proclaim the gospel with someone or to someone, every time we stand for truth and righteousness and justice, every time we care for the weak and the sick, we are in one sense doing the work of Jesus. This is the honor that we have. We bear the name of Christ and represent his name. And though it's a privilege and honor, it is still costly. There's a reason why Mark, has recorded on either side of Jesus commissioning his disciples the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth and the beheading of John after Jesus sends them out. What's the point that Mark is trying to convey? Well, to be a representative of the kingdom of God, to speak as a representative of the kingdom of God, means you will come into conflict with this world. You will come into conflict with this world that is hostile to the kingdom of God and it will cost you just as it costs Jesus, just as it costs John the Baptist, and just as it costs all of the disciples of Jesus. In order for us to be faithful as a church, we must be willing to come into conflict with a hostile, unbelieving world that will respond with hostility and unbelief. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that hostility and unbelief, there will be those whom God will rescue from the kingdom of darkness and bring into the glorious kingdom of his beloved Son. And so let us, church, Be faithful to such a task, no matter what it may cost us. Let's pray. Father, help us as your church to truly represent Christ in a way that would bring honor and glory to his name. Help us as a church to be light in the midst of darkness to call people from death to life, to call people out of darkness into life. Help us, Lord, in this task. We need the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.